Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One morning in 1912, 28-year-old J. Douglas Edgar slung his golf clubs over his shoulder for another day of practice. Edgar desperately wanted to be one of the world's greatest golfers, but he wasn't even close. That day, he was flat broke and at his wit's end. Edgar was aging fast and he had a bum hip and things weren't going quite as he had hoped. He was performing terribly in competitions. His game showed no signs of improving. But that day during practice, Edgar tried something completely different. Instead of taking full swings, he limited his hips' range of motion. He hugged his upper arms tight to his chest. This way, he thought, he could still put power into his drive without agitating his aching hip. He swung and connected with the golf ball. To his shock, it was the best stroke that Edgar had hit in years. Soon, this technique would be dubbed the movement, and it would turn Edgar into the golf star he had always dreamed he could be. At least until his tragic death ended his golf dreams for good. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the death of professional golfer J. Douglas Edgar. This week, we'll cover Edgar's long and unexpected rise to fame. Next week, we'll cover his supposed murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
J. Douglas Edgar was born in 1884. The Edgar family were all Geordies, hardworking and blue-collar natives of the northeastern edge of England. Northern Geordies, like the Edgars, were on one side of a great divide within the country. They saw their southern countrymen as posh snobs, and the southerners thought the northerners were a bunch of uneducated working-class brutes. But if any of these southern socialites had encountered the young J. Douglas Edgar, they might have thought twice about their judgments. By the age of 13, he had wowed his school teachers with consistently strong marks and a wit that far surpassed his age. But his ease at school left him plenty of free time to get in trouble, and Edgar had a knack for that, too. Those sure are a keen pair of shoes, miss. And that hat, too. Goes perfectly with your eyes. Say, that bag you're carrying looks awful heavy. Here, please, allow me to help. Oh, goodness, you really don't have to. It would be my privilege to help a lady as beautiful as you. Oh, well, if you insist. I hope your parents know they've raised an incredibly kind young man. Now, this isn't too bad. This ought to be just... just... Oh, no, you poor thing. Are you all right? It's just this bum hip of mine. Nothing to worry about. Now, where were we? Oh, please, you've done more than enough. Do not lift another thing. In fact, here, take this. A kind young man like you ought to be rewarded. Edgar was good at conning people into giving him money. Maybe a little too good. Locals began to recognize the boy and put an end to his ruse after a few months. But the scheme put money in Edgar's pocket, and he wanted more. And so, Edgar headed to the city of Newcastle Golf Club in search of a few unsuspecting golfers to con for a couple shillings. It wasn't long before he found just that. Good day, sir. Those clubs look awful heavy. I'd be happy to lend a hand. Have at it. <laughs> look at you wrestling with those things. You haven't played golf a day in your life, have you? No, sir. It's not my game. Don't you think you ought to try it before writing it off? I suppose you're right, but I'd rather spend my time doing something more challenging. No offense, of course. More challenging than golf? The man stopped dead in his tracks. He planted the tee into the ground, placed a ball on it, and handed his club to Edgar. Edgar wasn't quite sure what to make of this, but he knew the more he played along with the golfer, the more money he'd likely be able to get out of him. So apprehensively, Edgar took the club and approached the ball. He swung and missed the ball by a solid three inches. Edgar was used to things coming naturally to him. He was shocked, but the golfer encouraged him to give it another shot. So Edgar spread his feet apart gripped the club's handle even tighter, and swung with all his might, and once again... This went on for another seven tries. With each miss, Edgar became more and more agitated. The golfer just watched with a smile on his face. He had made his point. Finally, he took back his club and spoke a few words that would change Edgar's life forever. You can live a long life before you find something more challenging than golf. Edgar stood in the same place for minutes after the man left, staring down at where the golf ball had once rested. His ego was bruised, 
but he was determined to never let that happen again. He was going to master golf. By 1899, 15-year-old Edgar was spending every second he could at the Newcastle Golf Club, using an array of abandoned golf clubs that he had found around the course. He watched the other players at the club for hours. He studied every move, from the way they spread their feet to the turn of their hips. At home, he spent hours in the dark trying to mimic what he had seen that day. He hoped that by depriving himself of sight, he could teach his body to feel the swing. Most afternoons, he would station himself in front of anything that cast a reflection. His favorites were store windows around town. Shop owners repeatedly shooed him away from their storefronts day after day out of fear that Edgar was scaring potential customers with his wild swings. It wasn't long before Edgar wanted to put his exhausting practice to the test. At the age of 15, he entered his first tournament at the Workingmen Golf Club. His game was still shaky, but his focus and determination earned him his first victory. Edgar was elated. He had found his calling. As he grew older, Edgar decided to set his sights on becoming a golf pro. But the life of a pro was not as glamorous as the title implied. They were treated like the club's show ponies, trotted out for people who wanted to watch a game and to boost the status of the club. When they weren't playing, the golf pro was expected to tend to the club, give lessons, and work on his game. But they were forbidden from actually entering the clubhouse or taking anything close to a break. But that was all fine with Edgar. His love for golf had become all-consuming. Besides, a golf job would keep him from the difficult life of a coal miner, the normal path for Edgar's classmates after graduation. Soon enough, his devotion to the sport wouldn't just keep him out of the coal mines. It would catapult him to greatness. Coming up, J. Douglas Edgar becomes a star. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now back to the story. 
By 1899, when J. Douglas Edgar was 15 years old, he had decided that he wanted to be the best golfer the world had ever seen. He dreamed of someday getting as good as his hero, Harry Varden. Varden also came from a working-class family. He was a testament to the fact that a man could achieve sports stardom using sheer ability alone, and Edgar absolutely loved him. But if Edgar wanted to compete with Varden, he needed practice. Lots of it. So Edgar signed on for an apprenticeship with the golf pro of the Newcastle Golf Club, a man named John Caird. Caird was quick to notice a spark in young Edgar. He had many pupils before, but none quite as persistent and impassioned as Edgar. Then, one afternoon after the two had been working together for a few months, Caird pulled Edgar aside. Just letting you know, we'll be closing the shop tomorrow. We are? There isn't anything wrong, is there? No, nothing wrong. I just have a match in Northumberland. Oh, all right. Well, best of luck to you. Well, I was thinking it could be good for you to come watch. You mean it? Who are you playing? All right, now don't completely lose your head, but Harry Varden. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was a dream come true for Edgar. And while the burly Varden wowed the entire crowd that day, Edgar was hanging on every swing and putt. As he headed back home that day, a sense of dread washed over him. He'd never possessed the brute force that Varden had. Edgar's scrawny frame would never be able to deliver the powerful swing that sent Varden's balls soaring down the fairway. But if Edgar couldn't become the muscular beast that Varden was, he'd figure out another path to golf stardom. So he doubled down on his efforts. He put in more hours practicing with Caird than he ever had before, and soon it paid off. By the spring of 1907, 23-year-old J. Douglas Edgar was asked to become Northumberland Golf Club's first professional. It didn't seem like a huge deal to anyone else, but Edgar was overjoyed. He could feel his dreams were finally coming together as he became more involved in the culture that surrounded the Northumberland Club. His social life began to blossom too. He quickly earned himself a bit of a reputation. His fellow golfers loved to join Edgar for a drink after a day out on the course. These were some of the most joyous years of Edgar's life. Money was good, he was surrounded by a group of fun-loving, like-minded individuals, and he got to do what he loved every day, golf. But despite the fact that his entire life was carved around the sport, his game had hit a wall. That year, he had made no noticeable progress on his swing, but this was not for lack of trying. Say, would you mind watching my swing and letting me know what's not adding up here? I just can't seem to connect the way I'm wanting to. Sure thing. It's the backswing that's giving you the issue. That's plain as day. You really need to move through with your hips. It's always the hip. Every time I try to rotate on the backswing, it feels like someone's taking a hot iron to it. Well, I hate to break it to you, Edgar, but that's the way it's done. That's the way it's always been done. Just keep at it. I'm sure you'll figure something out. (sighs) But Edgar didn't figure anything out. 
He read every book and studied every golf theory he could get his hands on. All the research soon turned him into a brilliant golf instructor, but it didn't help his own game at all. Thankfully, one day in 1907, Edgar met someone who finally took his mind off of golf. Her name was Meg Colson. Meg was 25 years old and one of the most beautiful girls in Newcastle. They fell in love immediately and were quickly married. Soon after the wedding, the couple moved to Fencer Hill Park, just a short walk from the Northumberland Golf Club. Edgar kept up his practice, but when May gave birth to a baby girl, he knew that something had to change. He wasn't just playing for himself anymore. He had a family to support. So in 1909, Edgar signed onto the Open Championship at Royal Sink Ports in the town of Deal. Unfortunately, it went about as bad as he could imagine. Edgar's nerves were so bad that he had trouble breathing. He made just about every mistake that a golfer could. After all was said and done, he tied for 21st place and didn't make a cent in winnings. But Edgar didn't care. He just kept trying. By 1912, 28-year-old J. Douglas Edgar had competed in several more tournaments. Most of them went about as well as the first. Edgar was torn. In his heart, he believed that he could become one of the greats, but it seemed like so many things were in his way. First, there was his bum hip. His joints would audibly pop and creak any time he'd bend over to retrieve his golf ball from the ground. It would constantly ache and throb. On top of that, Edgar had his fair share of vices. He loved to drink and gamble. His game could only improve so much if he showed up to the club hungover from the night before, preoccupied with thinking about the bets he had placed. Who is that on the phone, Edgar? Your brother? Yeah, he's got a position opening up on the farm. What's that have to do with you? If this hip doesn't let up, I have no future in golf. I might as well just cut my losses. The farm's a decent living, plus it's in my blood. You stop that talk right now. You are out on that course every single day. You mean to tell me that you're going to let that hip of yours stop you from doing what you've been dreaming of since you were a boy? I just... I just don't know. Oh, honey, come here. Edgar's persistence would soon pay off. Only months after nearly quitting the game for good, he would have a breakthrough that would rocket him to stardom. In the summer of 1913, Edgar was practicing a stroke at the High Gosforth Park race course. He was taking a few shots with his five iron when his hip started to hurt worse than ever before. Edgar couldn't even take full swings. So he did the only thing that didn't hurt. He limited the movement of his hips almost entirely on the backswing and awkwardly swung his club. The moment he connected with the ball, Edgar was speechless. It was the best shot he had taken in years, but it didn't make any sense. He dropped another ball and attempted to recreate the exact same swing. He kept his hips motionless on the backswing and his upper arms glued to his chest. The second shot sailed straight down the fairway, just like the first. Again and again, he repeated this process and each time the ball went sailing straight towards the green. 
Edgar had to share his new discovery with someone, so he raced to find his young golf caddy, Tommy Wilson. He could barely contain his excitement. No, 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 no. I know it feels like the last thing you ought to be doing, but you want your stance even wider. Wider? Are you crazy? And keep that left foot of yours splayed out counterclockwise. If you say so. Have a little faith, Tommy. Wow! Right on the green! Yes! It works! It really works! This was all the proof Edgar needed. Edgar began teaching this new technique, which he dubbed the movement, to a number of new students. Every single one of them showed immediate improvement, but no one's game improved more than Edgar's. By 1914, he competed in the Northumberland Professional Tournament and won by 10 shots. His winning streak continued well into the spring of the same year. It wasn't long before word spread, and Edgar felt like he had had all of Northern England watching him. Soon, Edgar was invited to compete in a small, exclusive tournament. It was a prestigious opportunity, but when he found out who his competition would be, Edgar was stunned. He was set to face off against his childhood hero, Harry Varden himself. On the morning of the tournament, Edgar was a complete mess. His hands shook so violently that he had trouble holding his club. Varden was a large and intimidating man, often known to go a full tournament without uttering so much as a word to his opponents. But something about seeing Edgar in such a fragile state stirred something in him. So he went over to the young man and introduced himself. How you feeling, my friend? Mr. Varden, it's a real honor. Nah, enough of that, kid. On this course, we're the same. Well, I don't think it's much of a secret that I am a proper mess this morning. An absolute wreck. <laughs> My first few tourneys got me the same way. Know what I'd do? I'd hum a tune. Or whistle. Anything to get your mind off all this and just ease those nerves. Whistle a tune? That's easy enough. That a boy. Chin up. You got quite a unique swing. Just keep your head on straight and you'll do just fine. It worked. Edgar gleefully whistled the song, How Sweet the Tuneful Bells, for the rest of the tournament, and ended only three shots behind Varden. His dreams had finally become a reality, and this was just the beginning. Edgar's golf record was nearly spotless, and the timing of his success was nearly perfect. The French Open was just around the corner. In the world of golf, especially during the early 1900s, there was no tournament more prestigious in all of continental Europe than the French Open, and Edgar's new success had earned him a spot. By the end of the first round, the only name on people's minds was Edgar's. He had tied Varden for the lead. The audience was quick to write this off as a fluke. There was no way his luck could last throughout the tournament. But Edgar tied Varden once again in the second round. And by the end of the day, Edgar was in first. The next afternoon, during the tournament's last round, Edgar beat Varden by six shots. French sports writers dubbed Edgar the whistling champion. 
He whistled his way to victory, and journalists praised him all around, saying things like, It really looks as if a star of the first magnitude has suddenly appeared in the person of Edgar. This was the biggest moment of Edgar's life, and he was a man who knew how to celebrate. That evening, he blew all of his prize money on drinks for himself and everyone at the pub, including some of the more charming female caddies. By the next morning, Edgar was broke. He didn't even have enough money to get back home. He had to ask the club to wire him 10 pounds for the trip. Back in England, he promised to make it up to the club by winning an exhibition he had coming up in the town of Seton Carew. He told all the members of the club to bet handsomely on him, and all of Edgar's gambling friends went home with a lot of money that day. But just when Edgar's career seemed to be reaching its peak in 1914, war broke out. Germany invaded Belgium, and World War I was underway. Edgar loved his country, so he put down his golf clubs and enlisted in the army. And once again, Edgar's bum hip came in handy. It made him ineligible for the front lines, and he landed in the medical corps and munitions. The army also took full advantage of having a rising golf star in its ranks. For a little under a year, the English military flew Edgar all around the world to play, give golf lessons, and to boost morale. He gave lessons to top British commanders as far away as Egypt and participated in a number of celebrity events to raise money for the army. But the war wasn't only fun and games for Edgar. One day while serving in the medical corps, he witnessed the brutal aftereffects of a mustard gas attack on his fellow countrymen. The terrible images from that day haunted him night after night. In 1916, Edgar was discharged due to unsound health. He returned to work at the Northumberland Club, but something wasn't the same. The war had changed him. His drinking habits were suddenly more self-destructive. The once jovial drunk now acted erratically. If he wasn't the life of the party, he would be in the darkest corner of the pub, drinking alone with his troublesome thoughts. But Edgar's love of golf refused to waver, and as the war carried on, he realized that his opportunities in England were shrinking. European clubs were shutting down left and right, and the dwindling economy made the recreation business shrivel. But in America, sport was becoming a booming industry. So Edgar decided it was time for him to set off for greener pastures in America. In 1919, he stepped down from his post at the Northumberland Club and boarded a ship that would take him to a new country and a whole new world of opportunity. Coming up, Edgar's career reaches its peak in the United States until his life is cut unexpectedly short. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. 
Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, back to the story. By 1919, 35-year-old J. Douglas Edgar was well on his way towards achieving his lifelong dreams of golf fame. His new approach to the golf swing, dubbed The Movement, brought him tremendous acclaim, both as an instructor and as a player. But he knew that he needed a change of scenery if he was going to continue on his path to greatness. So he arranged to leave northern England in search of new opportunities in the United States. His wife, Meg, was less enthusiastic. She refused to leave her home on such short notice, but Edgar's mind was made up. He left his family behind and boarded a ship for a grueling week-long voyage to New York City. Once the ship docked, Edgar headed straight to the offices of John McKay, president of Golf Illustrated. McKay informed Edgar that a new club was opening up in Atlanta called the Druid Hills Golf Club. They were in dire need of a pro. Edgar was more than willing and arranged a meeting with a member of the club's board of directors. Mr. Edgar, I must say it is a true honor. I'm the one who's honored. Mr. McKay painted a lovely picture of Druid Hills. And as a man who's seen a share of fair views, I can see why you're such an enthusiastic bunch. Well, I will admit, it is quite the sight. So, Mr. Edgar... Please, call me Doug. Doug, your accomplishments are no secret. We're all huge fans of yours back in Atlanta. But you do realize that as our golf pro, you'd be expected to do more than just teach and play golf. You'll be representing Druid Hills in everything you do, all that you say and everywhere you go. Sir, I'll remain devoted to your club and to the sport until I'm dead and gone. You have my word. (laughs) In that case, we have ourselves a deal. The minute he stepped onto the Druid Hills Golf Club in Atlanta, Georgia, he felt right at home. The course bore a striking resemblance to the Northumberland Golf Club, complete with babbling brooks and tall oak trees. But the loneliness of the new country eventually caught up to him, and the terrors of the war continued to haunt his thoughts. He still struggled to shake the images of dying soldiers from his mind. One day, Edgar boarded a train to New York City to meet his former caddy and student, Tommy Wilson, and hire him as his assistant. But once Edgar arrived at Wilson's hotel... It didn't take long for Wilson to realize that something had changed with his old boss. Edgar, it's been years. Wilson, hi. It's good to see you. Uh, 
Yeah. You too, pal. Uh, how's your game been? My swing's been off. Uh, it seems every iron shot I take has been going to the left of the green. Hmm. Maybe your left shoulder is pulled in a bit too close? Left shoulder, huh? You know what? You might be right. Yeah. So, it's good to see you. Sure. How about we find a place to drink before we set off? Although Edgar was in a dark mental place, he was still expected to take part in the major golf tournaments of 1919. The first tourney on the docket was the U.S. Open at Brayburn Country Club, just outside of Boston. But when he got onto the green, he realized he was in no shape to compete. It had been five years since his last competition. His hands shook. His head throbbed. By the end of the tournament, Edgar was 12 shots behind. His dreams of making a good first impression on the United States golf scene had been ruined. He was so upset that he even considered hopping on a boat and heading back to England for good. He performed poorly at the Western Open in Chicago only a few weeks later. Then he traveled up to Canada for the Canadian Open. Edgar hoped that this trip up north and new scenery might help him shake some of his nerves, and somehow it worked. He finished that first day with a six-shot lead. The next day, he only got better. Today, Jay Douglas Edgar, the English pro and former French champion, representing the Druid Hills Golf Club in Atlanta, played what has to be one of the most awe-inspiring games of golf ever witnessed on American or Canadian soil. With his third-round score of 69 tying the course's record, Edgar came out with a nine-shot lead. Women in the audience squealed as Edgar rolled in a putt. The crowd roared as he swung. It was unlike anything the sport had ever seen. At the time, it was named the single best round of golf ever played. Word spread rapidly of Edgar's godlike display. Even his childhood hero, Harry Varden, said that he'd never seen anything like it. Edgar was on his way to becoming a household name, but he had left a household of his own behind in England. And so in the fall of 1919, he brought his wife Meg and his children to America. Unfortunately, Edgar's family found the Atlanta heat to be nearly unbearable. Meg hated the gossipy nature of her new southern neighbors. And just to make it all worse, Edgar was almost never home. After his win in Canada, he was flying all over the States to play tournaments. By 1920, Meg had had enough. She was returning home with or without her husband. She had tried to fit into Atlanta, but this simply was not working. So mere weeks into the new year, Meg boarded a ship destined for Liverpool, forcing Edgar to choose between his marriage or his sport. Ultimately, Edgar would not survive long enough to make that decision. A few minutes before midnight on August 8, 1921, 20-year-old Comer Howell headed home with two co-workers after an exhausting day of work at the Atlanta Constitution. However, as Howell's Cadillac breezed through West Peachtree Street, the night took an unexpected turn. Howell's feet slammed on the brakes and his car screeched to a stop. Something was in the road. The three men all sat in silence as they slowly realized what it was. A crumpled body lay up against a curb 
its face in the gutter. The street was stained by a growing puddle of blood. As Howell's co-workers flagged down a passing car for help, he ran to the closest house he could find and started banging on the windows for help. Suddenly, a man burst from the house, still wearing his bedclothes. He ran over to the body and fell to his knees. Howell couldn't have known it then, but this was Tommy Wilson. The man in the street bleeding out was J. Douglas Edgar. Wilson put his ear down to Edgar's lips. The man was still clinging to life. Edgar managed to push out an incomprehensible rasp, as if he was trying to whisper something to his old friend and prized pupil, but the words wouldn't form. Then, still in Wilson's arms, he went limp. J. Douglas Edgar was dead at the age of 37. Everything at the scene that night pointed to a hit and run. But as the investigators, and even Howell himself, dug into Edgar's life, it became clear that the cause of death was much more complicated and sinister. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of J. Douglas Edgar's Strange Death. For more information on J. Douglas Edgar, amongst the many sources we used, we found To Win and Die in Dixie by Steve Eubanks, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by River Donahay and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Drew Lawn, Ellie Schiff, and Julian Smith. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>